in our call to worship, in our hymn of praise, in our invocation, there's been an emphasis on the blood of Jesus. And that's not because we love violence and death. It's because of the significance of Jesus willingly coming into our world and dying to do what we couldn't do, and that is atone for our sins and restore a right relationship to God. And with that context, listen now to God's holy and inerrant Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Our Heavenly Father, we return now these tithes and these gifts and these offerings to you because what we have, everything we have, has come to us through your hand. And we pray that you would use these gifts to further reveal your kingdom in this place and throughout the world and to push back the kingdom of darkness. We pray that these gifts would be used in order that the wonderful good news of the gospel would go out into all the world, and that many would believe, and many would rest upon the Lord Jesus and have life in Him. And Father, as we prepare ourselves now to come before Your Word on this cold and chilly day, we pray that You would warm our hearts with the good news of the gospel. Father, that You would that you would do to us what you did for your disciples on that road to Emmaus when they talked with Jesus and at the end of their conversation, when they looked at one another and said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he opened the scriptures to us? Father, we pray that you would come by your spirit, that you would warm our hearts with truth and with grace, with, with mercy and with compassion, with your loving kindness, would you heal our hearts as we see that because of Jesus, it can be true of us that both at the same time, we can be far more broken than we could have ever imagined about ourselves. But we can also be far more loved, accepted, and invited into your very presence than we could have ever dared dream possible. We pray all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And children ages 3 to 6 are now dismissed to Children's Church, so you can make your way to the back of the sanctuary now.
This morning, we're continuing our series on relationships that we've been in for the past few weeks, and we'll be in for a few more weeks. Um, but this morning, I want us to talk about and think about what it means for us to live in authentic relationships. A couple of months ago, I was reading the newspaper, and, um, and I read this interesting article from a columnist with the Chicago Tribune. And the article was something about how we feel uh, when we're left out of the loop, um, you, when we're not privy to certain information among friends. And one of the author's sources was a neuropsychologist, and this is what he said. The two great themes in human life are autonomy and intimacy. On the one hand, we think, I've got to be me, but there's also a need to be a part of we. And he's right, you know. If we think about our common everyday experience, we see these two themes playing themselves out. I mean, shouted at us all the time in our culture is be true to yourself. Be true to your own heart. Be an individual. Don't let anyone tell you what to do, right, or what to be. But as the comedian Louis C.K. has joked, there's this other theme in our lives, right, that's also lurking beneath the surface, this desperate need we have to be with others and to be a part of the we, right? So in an interview, this man, this comedian was talking and he said that he looks around and pretty much in his observation, a hundred percent of people, he says, that are driving are also texting. And he says they're killing and everybody's murdering each other with their cars. And then he says this, but people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second, right? You're an individual, but you are also desperately needing to be a part of we. And we've been seeing this week in and week out, right? We're made in the image of God. But this God that we worship, this God whose image we are made in, he's a triune God, right? One God who is perfectly at the same time, one and also three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we, as his creation, we are made to reflect this simultaneous unity and diversity in our lives. We're individuals, but we are also interdependent in our relationships. We're made to reflect this. So how do we become a part of we? And how do we move towards one another in authentic, real, vulnerable transparency? Because if we're honest, if we start to think about that, it sounds really, really good, but it also sounds really, really terrifying. Um, John begins his gospel account, John chapter 1 that we heard read for us earlier. John begins his gospel account by calling Jesus the Word. Some of you know that the Greek word there is logos, right? It means word, or you could translate it message or speech or something like that. Think with me about the function of words just for a moment. Words are used to express, right? Words are used to reveal. They're used to, we use our words to disclose information, to illuminate, right? To pull back the veil and reveal. And that's why we're comfortable saying some things to some people, but with other people, we're very uncomfortable saying those same things because we know instinctively that the function of words is to reveal, that when we speak, we reveal who we really are, right? We know this. 
why does John start his gospel right in the very first sentence by calling Jesus the word? Because he's saying Jesus is the speech. Jesus is the revelation. Jesus is the self-disclosure and the self-expression, right, of God himself. He's saying God held nothing back, right? He came close and he said to us, this is exactly what I'm like. If you've seen the son, you've seen the father, right? This morning, I want us to see the transparency of God to us in Jesus, how he moved towards us, right, in real vulnerability and authenticity. But I also want you to know that if this good news, that God did this for you and for us, if this good news comes into your heart, it will change you forever, right? In and through this good news, we find hope and freedom to move towards one another and be who we were made to be, to move towards one another in real authenticity and become a part of we. See, the hunger that we have on the one hand, right, to be truly and deeply known, but on the other hand, right, this terrifying fear of being truly and deeply known, it has all of us feeling a little schizophrenic, We desperately need it, but we're terrified of it. But see, in the gospel, where we're going this morning, I want us to see that in the good news, we find the freedom of being truly and deeply known and at the very same time knowing that we are thoroughly and completely loved. So here are our points this morning. There are four of them. The vulnerability of God, the dwelling of God, and the redeeming work of God. And then finally the transformed people of God, where we'll try to make some application. We'll move through these points pretty quickly. So first, the vulnerability of God. Verse 1, in the beginning, John writes, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you get this amazing statement in verse 14. The Word became flesh. The, The ultimate revelation, right? The expression of God, his self-disclosure became flesh. He came down. He became blood and muscle and bone and flesh like us. St. Augustine, an early church father in the fourth century, he, he dwelt on this amazing wonder and, and, and this amazing mystery. And he wrote, Jesus was before his own flesh. He created his own mother, He chose her in whom he should be conceived. He created her of whom he should be created. The word was God. It's amazing to ponder. Right? The creator became the created. The God who exists outside of space and time. He has entered into the warp and woof of history itself. I mean, if you think about it, when Jesus was on this earth, you could reach out and touch God. Right? You... You could see him and he could reach out and he could touch you. He could be embraced and he could be hugged and he could be kissed. And you could you could wash his feet with your tears. He was you could look into his eyes. But realize this, that when the word became flesh, God not only became physical and touchable, but God became vulnerable 
right? All of a sudden, God himself came down. And he was subject to the experience of pain and hunger and thirst and suffering and temptation. He became vulnerable to misunderstanding and to rejection. I mean, it's very clear, especially in verses 10 through 11. He came to his own people, John writes, and his own people did not receive him. He knows what it feels like to be rejected. He opened himself up to hurt and to betrayal and to disappointment and to pressure and to sorrow. Just read through the Gospels, all the things he faced. The author of Hebrews writes, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness or weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. See, when suffering and difficulty and hardship and pain, when those kinds of things come into our lives, we naturally want to only share that with people who have walked in those shoes, who know what that feels like, and who can identify with our experience. Jesus, he knew loss. He knew pain. He knew hurt. He knew rejection. He knew sorrow. He knew misunderstanding and injustice. His heart was broken and he felt real misery. But I don't want you to miss this. When God took on flesh, he became ultimately vulnerable. Because when God took on flesh, he became killable. One of my favorite quotes is from the author John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ. And um, let me, if I can turn this paper, um, I'll read it to you. This is what he writes. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, he writes, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I've had to run away. And in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. And Stott writes, that is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. God God became vulnerable for you, right? For us, he laid aside his immunity to pain. He didn't come to potentially face brokenness and pain in this life. He came to actually face it in his vulnerability. See, this, there isn't another concept of God that even comes close to this in all the world religions. The biblical God is utterly and completely unique in this. He was not detached From the agonies of this world, he came vulnerable to face it and experience it. So do you you ask yourself this question? Do you feel pressure? Do you feel pain and sorrow? Do you feel the injustices of this world pressing in upon you? He is much closer than you think. 
He has walked in those shoes. He was not immune to pain or sorrow or injustice. He has come this close to us. A second, think with me briefly about the dwelling of God. Verse 14, again, come back to that. The word became flesh, John writes, and made his dwelling among us. That word translated dwelling, as some of you know, it's an interesting word because it's actually a noun that's found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But John turns that noun into a verb in verse 14. So literally verse 14 reads, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You you can understand why some of the translators put dwelling there because we don't normally talk like this in everyday communication. But But I hope you will see in this point the meaning of that word, how deep and profound that meaning is then and now. Isaiah had prophesied centuries before that the virgin would be with child, right? And she would give birth to a son and she would call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us, God among us. That was the wonderful hope and promise that God had given to his people, right? Can you imagine God with us, God come near to us, God seeable, God touchable, right? To be before the face of God. The tabernacle in the Old Testament, it was, the tabernacle was um, this physical and symbolic representation of this very hope, right? That God would come near and be among his people. It was this tent in the center of the camp of the nation of Israel. And it was a place of worship. And it was a place for you to come and with your very own eyes see, right? See God's glorious presence, right? In fire and in smoke. This was the dwelling place of God among his people. The physical place he came down to meet with his people. More than that, though, this was the place where the people encountered God's grace, right? I mean, this was the place where the priest offered sacrifices for the atonement of sin. It was a place of blood. It was a place of death. It was a place of smoking burnt offerings. See, when you came to the tabernacle, you didn't just see it, right? But yes, you saw it, but you also smelled it and you also heard it and you also felt it. Your senses were assaulted with the presence of God, with the grace of God. John takes this very loaded word from the Old Testament in biblical history, and he uses it to point to Jesus as the fulfillment of the tabernacle. Some of you know that I I really enjoy reading uh, really good stories, and I, I enjoy reading, you know, fictional, kind of imaginative, some fantasy kind of stories. And the really good stories that you pick up and you read, they... They suck you in, right? They suck you in very quickly. You don't want to put it down. You're anxious to crawl back in bed at the end of the day so you can start reading again, right? In the story, there's, there's some kind of tension that's pulling you along. It's needing and wanting to be resolved. And so you keep reading. There's brokenness there that you see that needs mending, some mystery that needs solving, right? And so absorbed, you lose yourself in the story where you're hoping and you're looking for the resolution. And I love that part at the end 
When the author starts to pull it all together and pulls it together in just such rapid succession, you know, and all the loose ends are tied up and all the answers to all the questions start coming and the mystery is solved and the hope is fulfilled and the tension resolved, whatever. And listen, in that moment, right, in that moment, you are seeing your mind starts naturally tracing all the threads, right? All the way back to the beginning, many times, right? So the foreshadowing, the clues that you saw, but you missed the full meaning of those clues and that foreshadowing. And only now you are realizing the importance of everything, how much they were telling you. See, when John writes that the word tabernacled among us, he is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the tabernacle pointed to and foreshadowed. He's saying trace those threads, right? Remember the stories of God coming down in visible form and meeting his people in his grace. Only in Jesus now can you realize how much those stories were really telling us. Right? In Jesus, the deepest longings and hopes of our hearts are met. That's what John is saying to us. That God would come down. And he would be with us. See, the central place of worship, the gathering place of God's people, the place where God meets with man, right? The place where we find assurance of our pardon and of the forgiveness of sins. And we find the delight of God. It's not a tent in the wilderness, John is saying. That was just a shadow. That was just a clue. The place we gather, the place where we meet God, the place where we find assurance and worship is around the person and work of Jesus. I can't go into a whole thing here because of time, but all of us have sought to suppress our deepest longings and hopes to be before the face of God. We've all done it. We've ignored it. We've rebelled against it. Right, We've tried to fill it with a lesser hope or longing, but you cannot shake it altogether. You can't get rid of it. This is what we were made for. John is saying, listen to this good news. Jesus is the tabernacle and he can take you into the very presence of God and cleanse you and make you whole. Third, I want us to see how this self-disclosure of God, how Jesus came to accomplish, this is the third point, the redemptive work of God. See, if the word tabernacled in verse 14 is meant to act like a trigger and to make you think back to the Old Testament and the tabernacle, then the opening words of John's gospel in verse 1 are meant to make us think even further back, right? In the beginning, John writes, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I'm going to run through something really quickly here. I I don't want you to lose, right? I don't want you to lose uh, sight of the forest for the trees. But John makes several allusions to the creation story in these opening verses of his gospel. Verses 1 and 2, he references, right, the words, in the beginning. Verse 3, through him all things were made, he writes. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. In verse 9, the true light was coming into the world. This is a play on the creation of light and darkness, right? Verse 10, the world was made through him. Now, clearly, John wants us to see that this Jesus he is talking about is none other than the the creator God in the flesh. But I think there's certainly something more. John is saying, through the word, through the word, all things were made 
And now the word became flesh so that in him all things would be remade. See, the one who created everything, he has come in the flesh to redeem and recreate his fallen and broken creation. See, we weren't made for a world like this. Right? We weren't made for such brokenness, such pain, such twistedness, such injustice. We weren't made for a world full of violence and loneliness and hurt and sorrow and rejection. We weren't made for a fractured world like this, a world so fragmented. We weren't made to, dis- to distrust the one who made us and loves us. Jesus came to verse 12 and 13, bring new life to the children of God through his death. We're almost to the last point, but, but think with me here. Do you, I wonder if you remember how the gospel writers record Jesus' death on the cross. Stripped, beaten, right? His flesh torn, right? Alone, cut off, forsaken. But they also tell us that when Jesus died on the cross, darkness fell over the face of the earth. Luke writes that the sun stopped shining. We're told that the earth shook and the rocks split and they broke apart at his death. You realize what was happening? Creation was falling apart. Creation was breaking apart. It was coming undone at the seams. Why? Because the maker of all things, he was being unmade on the cross. He was coming undone to redeem us. The maker of all things had to be unmade upon the cross. See, what this tells us is that so great was our sin that nothing short of the creator being unmade and dying in our place could save us. And that is deeply and profoundly humbling. Yet so great was his love for us that he willingly came near. He became flesh. He became vulnerable. He became killable to redeem us through his sacrifice. And that is deeply and profoundly affirming. See, we hunger to be known, right? But it terrifies us too. It terrifies us because if someone knew the real us, we're scared to death that they would run away from us as far and as fast as they could to get away from the horror that is lurking in our hearts, right? So we're guarded and our walls are up with one another and we can't let anyone see this part or that part of us. And we can't be who we really are. We can't show who we really are. But what we're saying here is that God knows you. He knows you even better than you know yourself, Right? He knows the real you. He is seen to the very bottom of your heart. But he didn't run from you, is what John is saying. He ran towards you. And he took on flesh for you. Right? And he became vulnerable for you. And he became killable for you. And he is the fulfillment of the tabernacle for you. He was crucified for you because he saw you and he loved you all the way through. He loved you enough to die in your place in order to have you forever. And that is the incredible good news of the gospel. Now, finally, a little bit abruptly and briefly, 
we're getting to the last point, the transformation of God's people. If you've been around Grace Community Church for a little while, you've probably heard me say that if this good news would just get into your heart, right? If this good news that God himself loves you so much that he willingly came to die for you to pay all your debt, right? And to cover you with his son's righteousness, right? If that news could come into your heart, it would change you forever. It's like physics, okay? It really is like physics. Isaac Newton's first law of motion has come to be known as the law of inertia. You got to think back to like junior high school uh, for this, right? But here's the first law of, uh, of an, the first law of motion, the law of inertia. Okay, here's what it is: every object persists in its state of rest or uniform motion in a straight line unless unless it is compelled to change that state by forces impressed upon it. So it's true, right? See, this hymnal, if you say, this hymnal, it will stay right there unless forces are impressed upon it to move it, right? It will stay there, right? And your heart and my heart is the same. We will remain unchanged until something, until someone outside of us comes and compels us to change. And only then will we be deeply changed and transformed. See, all those times we've tried, I hope you can stay with me here for this. All those times we've tried to bolster our self-confidence by telling ourselves that we're great, that we're valuable, that we're significant, that we're lovable. You know, we're right in one way in doing that. Because what we know is that we will forever live under a cloudy fear of rejection until we know that we're enough, that we're valuable, that we are in fact lovable and significant. We have, we know this. We have to have that if we can move towards one another, right, in real vulnerability and openness and authenticity. We have to have this to become a part of the we. But here's what we end up realizing in life. We could tell ourselves over and over a thousand times a day, a million times that we're great, that we're lovable. But one harsh word, one belittling word spoken from the outside, one slight dismissal from your spouse, one revelation, one little outing of our brokenness, and we crumble. Because in that moment, we immediately doubt all the self-talk, all the self-affirmation, because the only way that we can truly know that we are lovable, that we are valuable, that we're important and significant, right, is to get that affirmation from the outside, right? And when the force of the gospel comes into your heart, the good news that God himself loves you and values you and sees you as significant I mean, he's the only one who matters. He's the king of kings. And he is crazy about you. When you realize that you are known by him and loved by him, that force will compel you to change. Now, four very quick pieces of application and we're done. First, I want to say this to you. Don't try harder to be more open and vulnerable and transparent with others. 
That's what most of us try to do, right? And when we try to do that, it's usually some spun version of ourselves. And it's very awkward and it's fabricated and it's very, very clumsy. And you end up, you wind up offending a lot of people a lot of the time, right? Instead, let me tell you this, what you need to do is to get in the way of this good news, to know it, to work it deep into your heart, to meditate upon it, to think on it, to do whatever you have to, to get this good news into your heart. You have to let this news change you from the inside out. That's where the gospel does its work. And then you will start becoming more open and more free and more vulnerable with others. And you'll start moving towards others because you, because you will start not needing their approval anymore and not fearing their rejection anymore because you are a beloved son or daughter of the King of Kings. And you have to need that truth deep in your heart. Second, be honest about your brokenness. Until this good news gets in your heart, you and I have a very real stake in not being honest about our brokenness. Of course we do. If we are honest about our brokenness and who we really are, we are terrified that all of our identity would come crashing in upon itself. And so we hide it, right? Let me tell you, a watching world sees this at work in the church, and it's totally turned off by it. Right? The world sees us pointing the finger constantly at the world, ready at a moment's notice to play victim to the brokenness of others in our society, all the while never being willing to be reflective about our own brokenness and our own fallenness and our own corruption. See, many times you and I have turned the world into a project. They, those people, those people out there, right, those straw men, they need the gospel. And until you've seen that it's we in here, in this room, in this sanctuary, in this church that needs the gospel desperately, until we get that, we won't be free to move out towards others with real compassion and mercy and grace and hope. Third, do not say that you cannot change. Right? This good news is for you, and it doesn't matter who you are or where you've been, or what you have done, when this truth comes into your heart that you are deeply known and loved by the word come flesh, right? It, it can change anyone, right? That's not to say that change will be easy in your life or that it will be without struggle or that it will be instant, right? The good news worked into the depth of your heart, though. It will begin to change you from the inside out. And this is the last thing I want you to think about. This is the last thing I want you leaving with at the end of today, right? I want you to think about your dwelling, right? That's one of our points. Think about your dwelling. Listen, here's how many of us think about gospel ministry. We think if we build it, they will come, right? Field of dreams, right? If we can get bigger, better programs, facilities, dynamic speakers, we're all tempted to that kind of thinking. If we can just get there, then they'll come, right? Let's figure out how they can come to us instead of figuring out how we can go to them. See, we miss this so, so very easily. Real ministry has always been incarnational. See, that's how Jesus ministered to the world. He came to it in flesh and sacrificed and suffered for it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling 
among us. So I'm asking you to do some concrete thinking around the lunch table throughout this week, right? What about your dwelling? God gave you the job he gave you. He gave you the family he gave you. He put you in the neighborhood he put you in, right? He gave you the friends you have, the relationships you have, the people you rub shoulders with every day. Why don't we spend time figuring out how to be incarnational, how we can go to others, right? At the end of our service, every Sunday morning, we hear this dismissal, and you'll hear it again this morning if I don't forget it, right? Now let us go out, we say, to serve our neighbors and the world as those who love and are loved by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's do that. Let's be that for our community, right? Going, reaching out, serving, moving towards others, not to get love, but from a place where we already are loved in Jesus. Let's go before him now in prayer. Our merciful Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that on every page of it, you reveal to us your son. You speak to us of all your son came to fulfill, all he came to do for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would melt the hardness of our hearts, that you would warm the iciness of our hearts with the good news that we have heard this morning. That Jesus, God, became flesh. That he became vulnerable for us. That he became killable for us. Father, we pray that you would warm our hearts with the good news that God made his dwelling among us. He was the fulfillment of the tabernacle, the fulfillment of our deepest hopes and our deepest longings. He came to redeem us and to recreate us. Father, be merciful to us. Be merciful to us and by your spirit, work this good news into our hearts in order that we would be transformed, in order that we could be honest about our brokenness, in order that we would move out to the world around us, in order that we would stop saying that we can't change and that we would trust you to change us in and through the work, through the good news of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would do this for us. It certainly would be for our benefit and for our good. We realize that. But we pray that you would also do this for your glory in the world. That the world might look and see what an amazing, wonderful God you are. That the world might look to the cross and see the place where righteousness and mercy meet. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.